Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's the sermon that Stephen preached to the council just after he was accused of, of speaking against the temple and speaking against the customs of Moses, and uh, both of which the Jews really held dear in their hearts. I mean, they, they loved the temple area. They loved the holy place. They loved the sacrifice. They loved the communion with God that took place there. And indeed, it was a, a lovely thing. They loved the law of Moses, this glorious law that had been delivered to them on Mount Sinai. And they loved that as well. But Stephen was preaching Jesus. And uh, preaching Jesus has implications about the temple, has implications about the law. And Stephen was preaching that worship isn't about worship in a place. Worship is about a person. Worship is about worshiping Jesus And worship isn't about sacrifices and the priests. It's about the sacrifice of Jesus. Anyway, these these accusations came. If you look in Acts chapter 7 and verse 1, when the high priest said, Are these things so? And then Stephen gave his his response. And so what I want you to do this morning is to to really listen to what, what Stephen said. I want to give it to you just as, as good and as best as, as I can. When he was asked if these things were so about the temple and about the, the customs of Moses, Stephen then answered to them. He said, brothers and fathers, hear me. He said, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was known to to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his household, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt 
until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with their race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was brought up for three months. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. But when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. When he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands. But they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? The man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing in Midian is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Help me. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? This man God sent by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him about Sinai and with our fathers. But our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you in exile beyond Babylon, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke with Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Then Stephen turned 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. For which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, rightly, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen looked up in heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. But as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, because he was being pelted with these rocks. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And he fell asleep. And who knows what happened to his body. They picked him up. They buried him someplace. Now that sermon wasn't good for Stephen. I, I expect after my sermon... To walk away from here. Um, he died. He died a death. He died a, a painful death. And this sermon wasn't particularly good for the church either. They lost one of their budding leaders. The persecution of the church was stepped up. In fact, even consider here. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And there arose that day. A great persecution against the church. In Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Bad for Stephen, he died. Bad for the church, great persecution. But, ultimately, good for Stephen. He remained faithful to the Lord, complete until the end. He was received into heaven by Jesus himself. This is the only place where Jesus is seen standing at the the throne of God. Normally he's sitting. And he, he was just sitting there waiting. But when Stephen came... He stood up to meet him and bring him in and said, well done, well done, good and faithful one. And throughout eternity, he would receive the honor. He will receive the honor. He is receiving the honor of being the first Christian martyr, the first one standing up willing to die for Jesus. Stephen was the first. There'd be more, but Stephen was the first. And ultimately, not only is it good for Stephen, ultimately, it's also good for the church. This event, the stoning of Stephen, was the catalyst for the church continuing on in its mission that Jesus gave the apostles. Remember, we've gone back to Acts 1-8 many times in our exposition of Acts. Right? That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Uh, Up until this point, up until Acts 8, verse 1, the church was very, like, happy and settled in Jerusalem. But the stoning of Stephen really was the divine push that that pushed them out into Judea in the south and Samaria in the north that eventually brought the gospel to the end of the earth. And so what had appeared bad at first actually ended well, as do so many things in life. Right In the moment that the trial comes, the disaster strikes, we may think they're bad and they may be bad and they often are bad. But our hope is that they will end well. That's why James tells us when we meet trials 
of various kinds. What does he tell us to do? James chapter 1, verse 2, he tells us to rejoice. Be glad when these trials come, right? Be glad when the difficult, hard things come upon your life. Not because the trials are so good, but because of what they produce. The testing of your faith, James says, produces steadfastness. And the promise of James chapter 1, verse 4 is that steadfastness will have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So when trials come upon our lives, right, their goal in the end is to land well that will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's why we can rejoice in the hardships that come upon our life because of the good that they'll bring. In fact, that's God's design. Right? Romans eight twenty eight promise for all who know and love God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. If you love Christ, if you're called according to his purpose, you can be guaranteed that all things are working together for the good, even the bad things, even the things that are hard and sorrowful. William Cooper wrote about this. He wrote, about the strange ways of God. We sing it often. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Like, like God is mysterious. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Right? He, he walks on the water. He rides the storm. He calms the storm. Then he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the sermon of Stephen that he preached was the frowning providence of God. Upon Stephen, for sure, the death of a godly man increased persecution that came upon the church. But behind this frowning providence, God brings a smiling face. And I'm sure today Stephen has a a smiling face. Said at the end of chapter six that his face was like the face of an angel. I'm sure that's what his face is like today. It's like the face of an angel, the smiling face of Stephen, the smiling face of God and Christ that he had done well, faithful until the end. And I'm sure Stephen has no regrets today of his shortened life. Absolutely sure. And the church only grew as a result of the persecution. So let's let's start digging into the sermon itself. But before we start digging, we need to realize what this the sermon is. It sounds, on one hand, like like a history lesson, because Stephen does go over the history of Israel. He began with Abraham, and then he mentions the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He mentions their 400 years of slavery, mentions then Moses, who brought them out, mentions Joshua, mentions David, and then ends his history lesson with the time of Solomon, just as he was building the temple. But you need to realize that that though he goes through the history of Israel, this is more than mere history. Um, it was history with a particular perspective. And by the way, all history has a particular perspective because you can never tell the whole story of history. So what, what you do is basically you, you tell the stories that support your narrative to fulfill your narrative. Whether that be good or bad or whatever, you, you can only tell a portion of history. And so you, you tell that portion which helps to interpret your view of things. And that's, that's not that it's deceitful or wrong or, you, or your perspective is, is, is wrong in any way. <clears throat> it's simply that history is like way too big to tell everything. So anytime you tell history, you, you have to tell it sort of with a, a little slant. I mean, for instance, think about when John wrote his gospel. 
this is really insightful. The very last verse of the Gospel of John, he said this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right? So in other words, in order to tell the history of Jesus, a Palestinian Jew, lived 2,000 years ago, all the world's books and all of Google is not enough to tell the story of Jesus. So what do you need to do when you tell history, when you tell the story of Jesus, you need to tell it from your perspective. And that's what John did. When he wrote his gospel, he was selective according to his writing. What he included, what he didn't include. Look at what he said in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the key verses of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John, when he thought about, okay, I need to tell this history of Jesus, he picked out these selective stories with the vision of his agenda, his particular slant on history, so that you might be convinced of Jesus, so you might believe in Jesus. And that by believing, you might have life in Jesus and enjoy eternity together with him. Indeed, I mean, that's, that's why we exist as a church, is it not? We exist as a church to proclaim his word, right? to tell others of Jesus, that they might believe in Jesus, that others might believe that Jesus died for their sins. They might have life in his name. And that's why we do, right? We, we trust in Christ. We come here week in, week out, believing of all the works that he did, that we might have life in his name. And even regarding history and, and telling it with a slant, like I've encouraged you thus far through Acts, just to think about the life of Jesus in big categories. His life that was perfect. His death upon the cross, which was brutal. The fact that he, he was dead and buried, he really was. But he rose again from the dead to give us hope. He ascended into heaven. He's exalted at the right hand of God. He's king and savior now, and every knee is called to bow to him. Like, that's telling history from a slant. That's telling this pie of history what Jesus is. It's what we do with all history. So, so getting back to Stephen, right? He, he, he wasn't hit telling us the story of Jesus. He was telling us the story of God's dealing with Israel. And his perspective really was motivated by his defense. You remember, he's defending himself against the accusations that came upon him. That's what verse 1 says says, are these things so? You say, what things? Well, the things we looked at last week in our, our passage in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Last week we looked at the accusations against Stephen. And the core of the accusations come in chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. I put them there on the overhead for you. But it says this. It says, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And you see, these are false witnesses because they're, they're sort of distorting the truth. Because a temple indeed is where God dwelt, and it's a wonderful place. And the disciples would never speak badly against it. And the law was, it was a great law. But the, the deal is that Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law so that has some implications about what's happening with the law. And the law speaks about the sacrifice and the priests. And that has implications then about the temple. But there are fundamentally, right, the, the two accusations. He speaks against the temple. He speaks against the law. He says this holy place is going to be destroyed. And you're going to change the law of Moses. 
Now, now these two things, right? The, the temple and the law were near and dear to any Jew. The, the temple was the central place of worship. Everything revolved around the temple. I mean, that's where God dwelt. It's where people met with God in the sacrifices, with the priests. The temple was everything for a Jew. You know, today, right, when we take Solomon's, right, the solemnest of the land, we, we raise our right hand, and if it's solemn and a solemn occasion, say like the inauguration of the president, he puts his left hand on a Bible, and he swears to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Like, that's like the most extreme thing you can do, with your hand upon the Bible, so help me God. And so likewise, these Jews, right, when they swore, they swore by the temple, I swear by the temple to execute my office to the fullest of my ability, so help me God. They swore by the the altar in the temple. They swore by the gold on the altar in the temple. And so any mention threatening the sacredness of that place was an attack upon the religious leaders of those days. Just like any attack upon the Bible is an attack upon anyone who believes and trusts in the Bible. And then when it comes to the law, the law likewise was the foundation of their entire society. It mapped out their, their social calendar for the year. It marked, marked out their, their weekly observance of the Sabbath and the times in which they'd celebrate as a family, gave them guidance for living, the way in which they need to love their neighbor as their self, the way in which they need to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was all spelled out there how to do that. And they were meticulous about every detail of the law, even down to the matters of tithing of their spices. So they would take their spices out and, and pour them out and then, and then separate their spices so as to be able to give some to the temple and then to be able to use others for themselves. Meticulous in every way. Very detailed about the law. And so any word spoken against the law of Moses was akin to blasphemy. And that's what they were accusing Stephen of. And, and that's why they were so against Stephen is because they heard him speaking of the implications of Jesus that it's, it's not about the temple anymore. It's not about these sacrifices anymore. The, the law of Moses has been fulfilled. Uh, and I think one of the reasons they're against it is illustrated in this great um, encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus met this woman who, who uh, was there in Samaria. Samaritans were shunned by the Jews and and um, Jesus' disciples gone off to get some food, and he was there, and he asked her to drink some water, had some discussion, and then he finally said this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You remember, she, she brought up the debate of the day. Is it, is it here in Mount Gerizim, which we Samaritans worship, or is it in Jerusalem that we worship? Like, where is to worship? And he said, it's not about where. He says in verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. It's on the overhead there. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I I think this is what was happening with these Jews. These Jews were so focused upon the the law and the temple that they missed the heart of worship. They're so focused on the externals of where to worship. Right. And, And what to do according to the law that they missed the fact that. That God worked throughout their history away from Jerusalem and away from this holy place. And that's exactly what Stephen's going to show. Relentless. That time and time again, God throughout the history of Israel was appearing to them and working in them. And they weren't in the holy place. They weren't in Jerusalem. So with that long introduction, let's dig into Stephen's sermon. My message this morning is entitled, 
Stephen's Sermon Part 1. Because obviously, having spent that much time on the introduction, we are not going to get through all of, uh, of this sermon. But I think through verse uh, 16, we've got a chance. So, uh, Stephen's sermon, right, was preached before the high priest, before the council, the same council that tried Jesus, the same council that tried Peter and John, the same council that tried all the apostles. And here's where Stephen begins. He begins with Abraham. It's the, the first topic of his message, which he brings up after the briefest of introductions. Brothers and fathers, hear me. He's just acknowledging the, the brethren who are, are there amongst them, the fathers, the Sanhedrin, these 70 people who are there judging him. He says, just, just listen to me now, please, will you? And then he starts with Abraham. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, I know that some of you are geographically challenged, especially when it comes to geography of the Bible, not quite knowing where Mesopotamia is, not quite knowing for where Haran is. So I've, I've got a map for you today of the ancient world. And the Jews of those times would have understood it. So here's the map of the whole ancient world. You know, see Jerusalem right there, and that's Israel in that little part. But you see over there Mesopotamia, I've circled that, and I've circled the city of Ur, which when you read Genesis 12, you find out that that's exactly in Mesopotamia where, um, where Abraham was. And now the, the question is, how far is Mesopotamia, how far is Ur from Jerusalem? Well, you might say, well, you just, you just go right across there, what, maybe 800 kilometers, which is maybe 500 miles? And I would say, uh, not so fast, because that area straight from Ur to Jerusalem is the Arabian Desert. It's like sand for miles and miles and miles and miles and zero water. Yvonne and I hiked the uh, Tahoe Rim Trail this past summer, had a, had a great time, 13 days around 160 miles 170 miles all the way around the lake and there were times where we we would go a long distance without water 10 miles maybe without water is that our longest okay so we went 10 miles without water and we had a ton of water on our back and we were walking we may have a tent can't quite do that 500 miles so if you want to travel from mesopotamia to jerusalem you're going to head northwest along the river Around the rivers Tigris and Euphrates coming up. And then at some point, when you get over far enough, right, you're going to be able to turn south and come down to Jerusalem. And so if you, uh, if you measure about how far that is, we're talking maybe about a thousand miles via the route in order to get there. But here, here's the point that Stephen is making. When God called Abraham, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't in this sacred holy place that you have, O Jews. He was far away in Mesopotamia, some a thousand miles from the holy place. In effect, Stephen was saying this. He says, you Jews, you place this huge emphasis upon the holy place. But do you realize that when God called our founding father, Abraham, he wasn't anywhere near this place. Don't you think perhaps maybe that God can be worshipped anywhere? Even in Ur of the Chaldeans? Why do you hold such strong allegiance to this place? As if coming to God was simply a matter of geography. In fact, even when Abraham was called, no mention was made of where he was going. So it's not like God says, okay, this is not the place. We got to go to this place to get you to this place because this is the only place where I'm going to be worshipped. Not so. Look at verse 3. And God said to Abraham, go out from your land and from your kindred 
and go into the land that I will show you. It's almost a direct quote from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And that's sort of like the person who says, here, come along with me. I got something to show you. What is it? Well, just trust me. Come along. And you're like, oh, you don't understand what's going on. But, but at the urging of your friend, you'll go and see this thing, whatever, whatever it is. See, God didn't tell Abraham where he's going. He just simply said, go out. God says, I'll show you the land later. That's not for now. For now, you simply need to go. For now, you simply need to trust. And this, by the way, is what made Abraham so great. Is that he trusted in the Lord. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it says he trusted in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? You you covered that on Wednesday, right, Darren? With the youth. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's why Abraham is so good for us because that's the gospel, right? When we trust God, when we trust the sacrifice of Jesus... God sees our faith and he credits it to us as righteousness. That's the gospel. Our faith towards God is considered from God to us as righteousness. We, we fail, we fall, we don't live perfectly. But it's not the solution that isn't to live righteously, perfectly before God. The solution is to trust in Jesus and realize then that he gives Jesus righteousness to us. Anyway, that's Abraham. That's the gospel right there. Trust in Christ. Trust his righteousness to you. At any rate, Abraham believed the Lord. He went out. And you see that in verse 4. Then it says, he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. And he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So when he, he took off, he, he, he went up to Haran, which was right up in the northern part of the river Euphrates and the river Tigris. Just right there. He, he lived there for some time. We don't know exactly how long he was there in Haran, but it was enough to settle because when he went down into the land of Canaan, it says in Genesis 12, verse 5, that they had to gather their possessions before they they traveled down. But anyway, Abraham traveled down into Israel. And if you read Genesis chapter 12, you find out that they came to places like Shechem and Bethel and Ai, but no mention of Jerusalem. He was the father of the faithful coming into the land of promise, but never dwelling in the holy place. That's Stephen's point. He says the place that you know so dear, O Jews, was practically unknown to Abraham. In fact, even in all the promised land, all the land in Canaan, he received no inheritance. Zero. Zippo. Look at verse 5. So he goes into the land. He goes into Canaan, where the promised land is, where he's going to inherit this land, according to the promise of God. And it says in verse 5, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. So foot's length. How how long's a foot? It's, It's that long, right? Just a foot. Abraham didn't even, he couldn't even stand on any portion that he received his inheritance because he received zero inheritance. But God promised. He said he got no inheritance. But he says, I tell you what, but I'm promising to give it to you as a possession and to your offspring after him, though he had no child. You got the promise. You didn't get the possession. You got the promise. In other words, Abraham lived in apartments his entire life. He didn't have anything in the land. Though he did buy something in the land. Who who knows what he bought in the land? Yes. A tomb. That's exactly right. He bought a tomb for Sarah because Sarah had died in the land. 
And so he, he spoke with the people of the land and he bought her a tomb with 400 shekels of silver so he could bury his wife. That's all he owned. Just a grave plot for his wife. No inheritance, but a promise. The promise was for him and his offspring would receive inheritance. But that, that came when Abraham was old and he had no son. So there's a promise for his son, right? There's an implicit promise there for the son. <clears throat> and then a promise for the inheritance after that. Now, but by offspring, it's interesting. God didn't mean his son was going to inherit the land. God didn't mean his grandson would inherit the land. God didn't mean his great-grandsons would inherit the land. Nor did he mean that his great-great-great-grandsons would inherit the land. You know who inherited the land? His great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons inherited the lands. Whatever it took to pass 400 years, those were the ones after Abraham who inherited the land. And that's the point of verse 6. God spoke to this effect. That his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Even speaking to Abraham, he says, here's my plan. I'm going to give you this land as possession to your offspring. Right? But, but first, they're going to spend 400 years in slavery. And then they'll come out and take this land. Then the offspring will. And God then even speaks about the judgment that he would bring. But I will judge, verse 7, that nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Only after 400 years of slavery in Egypt is when God freed the people from bondage from Egypt to come into the promised land. But it was not without punishing the nation that held them in servitude. They punished the Egyptians with 10 nasty plagues that came upon them. Right? But that would be in the future. Right? But the point is this, the father of faith, Abraham, received zero inheritance in the land. And, and, and Stephen is saying this with slant to these Jews. He says, but, but you Jews hold this land so sacred. But God worked in the life of Abraham when he was far from the land of promise, without receiving any of the land of promise. All he had was the promise, and that was enough for him to be right in the sight of the Lord and to trust him. We see the promise in verse 8. Which begins our next section of Stephen's sermon. We see this. We see patriarchs. Okay, verse 8 then speaks about this promise. And he gave them a covenant, which is a promise. The covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Here's the promise of circumcision. Right, This is the, the sign that uh, there would be a, a, an inheritance to come, right? But, but even notice here that this promise wasn't even in the promised land. It, it, was, it was in Egypt where God was working these things. Right? And, and the implication is God is not bound at all to Jerusalem. And, and we see the patriarchs named here in verse 8, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're mentioned this covenant of circumcision, which is a sign of God's promise to the descendants of God's people, even though they weren't such righteous people. And here's just beginning of a hint, right? He also, as he talks about the temple and the holy place, Stephen throughout the sermon is going to like nudge him on the law. Well, let's look at how good our fathers were. Because he's going to show them that they didn't keep the law. He calls them in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. You're just like our fathers. The fathers did so to you. And what did our fathers do? Well, they were jealous of Joseph, and so they sold him into Egypt. That comes in verse 9. Look there. It says the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, 
sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. So think, where was Joseph when God was with Joseph? Not in Israel, not in the promised land, not in the holy place. He was in Egypt. And that is, right, God was with Joseph far away from the promised land. And look at what God did for Joseph. Verse 10, that God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to make him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50, this is a wonderful story, which would take all of our time this morning just even to read. It tells a story about this this man, this righteous man, right, hated by his brothers, sold into Egypt. And then then he's serving Potiphar faithfully and serving him well in in charge of all his house, right, of everything. And then his his wife comes, Potiphar's wife comes, try to seduce him, and he he flees, rightly, he, he leaves, left his jacket behind, and his wife then accused um, Joseph of sexual immorality. He tried to make advances on me, and Potiphar got angry and threw him in, pr- in prison. Falsely accused. In prison. For over a decade, probably. But God was working his life. God was blessing him just like he blessed him in the house of Potiphar. In prison. Others observed him to be a faithful man, and he raised up to be sort of a, a leader in prison. And he helped people. Uh, he helped interpret some dreams, like the, the baker and the cupbearer. And he told them exactly what's going to happen. He says, please, when you, you get there to the cupbearer, he said, because the baker lost his life. It was bad for the baker, but it, the cupbearer was good. He said, please, please tell, tell Pharaoh about me, please, will you? And he interpreted the dreams. It happened just like he said, and the cupbearer forgot about him. Forgot about him. I don't think he forgot about him. I think he will affect how weird that would have been to bring this Jewish man. Hey, this guy interpreted my dream. He should be, he should be up here with us. I think he just... Let him to rot in prison. Betrayal is what Joseph faced. And yet there he was down there. And eventually, right, Pharaoh had a, a dream about this dream of these cows and, and these stalks of ears. And nobody knew how to do it. And then the cupbearer said, oh, there's this guy. Brings this guy, Pharaoh, or to Joseph, to Pharaoh. He interprets this dream because God gave him the ability to interpret the dream. Talk about the seven years of surplus and the seven years of famine he said, that's going to happen. And Pharaoh says, well, you, why don't you run the business? And so he says, okay. And so God gave him wisdom then in, in order to store up for the seven years of plenty. And so then the, the, during the seven years of famine, they would have enough. And, and people started coming to Egypt from all around. And it was Jacob who then heard about this grain in Egypt. But, but know that God raising up Joseph was the salvation for the people of Israel. They're going to be saved into Egypt. This salvation came into Egypt. We read about this in verse 11. Right? It was in Egypt, but now it comes. There's a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. There's great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Right? Here they are in Canaan, and they don't have any food. Jacob hears, verse 12, that there's grain in Egypt. So he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Right? Remember, they, they went out there, and Joseph found out who they were, and and um, didn't reveal himself to who he was and kind of played with them. And then they went back. He wanted to see how genuine they were. And then they went back. And then they said, oh, but we should go get some more. We don't have any more left. Jacob says, but, but you need to bring Benjamin with you and this whole, whole story. And finally, right, verse 13, on the second visit, right after Benjamin comes back, 
Joseph reveals himself who he is. It's one of the most heart-wrenching stories in all the Bible. Genesis, I think it's 44 maybe. It brings tears to my eyes almost every time I, I read it just to think about it. I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. And then they're like, oh, no, what's happening? And he says, no, no, don't worry about it. No, no, no. You didn't send me here. God sent me. God sent me ahead of you to save your life. In Genesis 45, four times, Joseph says that God sent me here to preserve you. That was God's plan, is to bring Joseph to Egypt to save the patriarchs in Egypt. So even notice the patriarchs are being saved in Egypt. They're not being saved in the holy place. So Joseph's family becomes known also to Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh, Joseph invited him to say, can I invite my, my parents to come? And they, and they did. They came and dwelt in Goshen because shepherds were abhorrent to the Egyptian people. And Joseph was, was there, the means of salvation. He, he led the way. God sent him into Egypt. He interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He was appointed as commander in Egypt. So there was a surplus so that the world would come to them for food, including Jacob and his family. It's really a, a great story about in Egypt, God is working to save his people, just as he foretold to Abraham in verses 6 and 7. Now we read about the rescue, we read about uh, everything in verse 14. Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And you can read the story in, in Genesis, you can read about all the names of all those who came. Just a huge family, all the descendants of, of Abraham, living not in the promised land, where the temple is, but living in Egypt. So consider this. Here's you got, you got uh, Abraham from Ur going up to Haran. His father dies there. Comes down to the land of Canaan. Were there for a few generations. But then this, this uh, famine happened. And so they went to Egypt. And God's people were in Egypt for 400 years. And here's the point, right? God is working in the lives of patriarchs. And they weren't even in the promised land. They were in Egypt. And the best they got was they're buried back in the promised land. Look at verse 15. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and her fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. See, they never received their inheritance, but at least they were buried in the land. <laughs> so, so Stephen here is talking about, okay, you think about our fathers, you think about this holy place. Well, at least they're buried here. They're, they're dead and in the land. But let's not miss Stephen's point. Those who hold dearly this place in Jerusalem that neither Abraham nor any of the patriarchs received any inheritance of land. They never knew about this temple to be built in Jerusalem in this holy place. Right? The tabernacle, the revelation of the tabernacle about how to worship in this, in this place, in this tent that eventually became a solid place, a temple, didn't come until Moses, didn't come until 400 years later. They didn't even know about this special place of worship. All they received was burial in the land. And yet they were worshiping the Lord. They were right before God, just fine and well. And I have to say, all, all this is good news for us. That we're halfway around the world from this holy place in Jerusalem. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem on the Temple Mount to be accepted by God. Now, the holy place in Jerusalem is a great place to visit, particularly because it helps us understand history. It helps us to understand the Bible. But it's not a great place you need to go in order to get right with God, to come and get right with God. It's through Jesus Christ. We come through belief and trust in Jesus. 
that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, that he raised from the dead, that we too might be raised someday into the newness of life to sit at his right hand with him. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what you must believe to be born again, to be saved, to enter into his glory. So let me pray, and then we'll transition to Lord's Supper. Father, I would pray that as we work through this difficult sermon and and we just see relentless how Stephen is constantly speaking about how it's it's not in the holy place that you have revealed yourself to the patriarchs. And you worked in Moses, not in the holy place. And it was not until David came around that there was a, a holy place built permanently. Father, I pray that we would rejoice that in Jesus, we here in Loves Park, Illinois, can worship you because we worship you, O God, in spirit and we worship you in truth. And I uh, just thank you for Christ. And I pray for those who, who are here today and aren't trusting in Jesus. Father, I would pray that you would open dark hearts and, and open eyes, God, to see the glories of Jesus. Even as we've been seeing in Acts about how we need to be witnesses, strengthen us, O God. Even be firm on this conviction that those we share with here in the Rockford area, God, simply need to believe and trust in Christ. And their sins can be forgiven and they can be made righteous before you. God, this is why we gather. This is why we exist as a church. God, that people might believe and and come to faith and know Jesus. So help us and strengthen us in these convictions that Stephen preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.